You're listening to Midori House First Broadcast on the 14th of December 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. We will be holding talks in coming days about how to obtain the further assurances that the UK Parliament needs in order to be able to approve the deal. British Prime Minister Theresa May discovers yet another part of no that she doesn't understand. My guests Carlotta Rabello, Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Augustin Machalari will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including an attempt to identify some of the world's less disapproved of leaders, the reasons why Hollywood is on course for its best year ever, and Berlin nightclubs offer to help their cities homeless. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle 24's Carlotta Ribello, Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Augustin Machalari. And welcome all to the programme. And we will start with a tale of two leaders for whom it is the worst of times. And listeners who've already guessed that the capital cities of the countries governed by the pair are London and Paris will by now be agog with appreciation at this subtly wrought Dickensian reference. Wasted on the panel, I suspect, <laughs> but you do what you can. It has not been a good week for British Prime Minister as we go to air to Theresa May or French President Emmanuel Macron. May survived a vote of confidence in her leadership by her own party. Macron, a vote of confidence rather in his by France's parliament, but victories of this sort tend toward the Pyrrhic. That's ancient Rome and Dickens in one introduction. Um, Carlotta, which of the pair looks least damaged or or, or who would you rather be at this point? Just as I say that, you're just thinking, God, what a choice. Well, of course, I'd be Emmanuel Macron, uh, like no doubt. Is it just because because he has a bigger house? Um, he's he kind of pulls be- off better wearing a turtleneck than Theresa May. <laughs> uh, no, if we look at just the numbers to try to be, uh, you know, uh, objective here, the defeat of the no confidence vote, uh, Macron had much better numbers. I mean, he the no confidence vote only had a support of seventy of the lawmakers when it needed about two hundred and eighty. 586, I want to say. Uh, whereas for Theresa May, obviously the numbers were quite different. Well, it was um, only her party as well. Exactly. Of um, and uh, in in her case, the the fact that she emerged from the no confidence vote with everyone that's pro May saying, "Ha, huh? she got one more vote than when she got uh, uh, elected last time around." It's like, well, that's not the silver lining on this story exactly. So. Uh, even though, of course, Macron still faces protests and a bit of backlash back home, uh, I think he's um, less humiliated than Theresa May. Is, is there around this table any any sympathy for either of them? Does anybody, anybody want to say, come on, give Theresa May and or Emmanuel Macron a break? They're doing their best. I have sympathy, actually, for both of them in a strange way, because, of course, Theresa May, I mean, she has a horrible immigration policy that caused me a lot of trouble. But in under the circumstances, I've wished her success because you know what's what would come after Theresa May. You know, much worse things in the in the very own Tory Party, and I don't think the, uh, the Labour Party is offering a solution. So I think it, it's better she stays there at least for now, in my opinion. And Macron, I think he's generally trying. I mean, even though some people made fun of his speech on TV, he was in his gilded room and everything. But 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 but, but let's be honest. I mean, he. He, he he backtracked and he said that he will uh, increase the minimum wage by 100 euros. I, of course, that's not enough. But he's he's trying. He knows that there is a problem and he's trying everything he can. 
Uh, Augustine, what about you? Or are you more in favour of the whole pitchforks, tumbrils and guillotines approach at this point? Yes, <laughs> very much so. I was reading sort of nostalgically about... We, we uh, should make clear to the listeners that you are in fact literally wearing a yellow high-vis vest right now. Yes, I haven't taken it off since uh, late <laughs> November when these protests started. Solidarity, brother. Um, yeah, I have, n- I have little sympathy uh, for anyone, really. But um, what anyone at <laughs> all? Or, 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 or <laughs> yeah, indeed. Macron, all six and a half billion of you. The hell with you. Macron seems to be in more trouble insofar as he is going to have to. You know, he wants to remain leader, doesn't he? And May has thrown up her hands and said. I'll be out before 2022's well, next general she, election. She did give herself a bit of wiggle room. I mean, the thing is about leaders is they generally want to stay leaders. Yeah, she's certainly given off a fairly good... Um, under, under, under these circumstances, the mind boggles at what craven desire for power must exist in her like icy heart. I would have been out of there so long ago. But she seems to have at least conveyed a fairly good impression of you know, wanting to shepherd the country through Brexit and then saying, OK, enough, enough May for, uh, for, for, for Great Britain. But um, the political reality of confidence votes, Carlotta, is that e- even if you survive them, the fact that they're called, uh, it, it never looks good, does it? Margaret Thatcher famously quit when she was actually still in front. She just you know, had won by what seemed like a laughably small margin and she realised that her jig was up and she went. Well, um it obviously damages the record of any leader to have that vote called upon you. But looking at these two cases that were from this week, um, I think this it's something quite different. Whereas for weeks here in the UK, we've been talking about the 48 letters being submitted um, so that Theresa May could face this no-confidence vote. In France, was quite unexpected off the back of uh, the three weeks of protests and then the concessions that Macron made. And the fact that it was tabled... Uh, by a quite minority party in the parliament, um, I think it has quite a, a different significance than the one from Theresa May. I feel like her no-confidence vote, regardless of how many people, how many MPs it took to win it, it really damages her reputation at a point where, for the Brexit negotiations, the UK needs to have kind of a clean slate, needs to have that soft power that it kind of has lost since the beginning of this whole thing. I mean, she went straight off back to Brussels to meet with the European leaders and, you know, bring back something that would please the MPs back in the House. And you can't really do that if you've just been massively weakened by a no-confidence vote in, in on your own turf. Uh, Fernando, do voting publics bear any responsibility for the mess that these two countries and the entire Western world basically are in? Are leaders having to grapple with the fact of pluralities of the electorate who are basically just demanding the impossible, uh, blaming everybody else but themselves for their own problems, uh, and are able to have their tantrums amplified by social media? Yeah, of course. And and, and, and the problem, especially in the United Kingdom, I've been saying to people, like, you can vote for a bad leader, a populist leader, but here in the UK, the Brexit, it is a never-ending topic. You know, and even when people talk about a second referendum, I'm not sure if it would work if you, if you would bring unity for the country. So I think the UK is living under exceptional circumstances. So 
if it wasn't for Brexit, I, I don't think it would be a problem. I think the Prime Minister would stay no matter the scandals. But it is. We're living under exceptional circumstances in the UK. OK, well, moving slightlessly and slightly, slightlessly, slightly and seamlessly was what I was going for there. Let's just pretend that attempt to start that sentence never happened. Moving slightly and seamlessly along, it is very easy to criticise political leaders, as we have just demonstrated during that previous item. But surely not every country on earth is run by hapless bunglers and or venal criminals. In more of the world than ever before, water comes out of the taps, lights illuminate on demand, shops are stocked, roads paved, diseases treated, and so surely someone somewhere must be doing something right. Let us now therefore give it up for a few of our favourite leaders, whether they are national, provincial, municipal, or indeed downright imaginary. Go nuts. Um, Does anybody have a politician or politicians they would like to speak up for? Big time. Go on then. Having just said I had sympathy for no one, I am 100... I'm going to regret this in like (laughs) 18 months. Almost certainly. (laughs) Oh, here we go. But the tapes are rolling. Well, you know what? I'm going to nail my flag to the mast. I am backing Abiy Ahmed of Ethiopia... Who has, so far, so good. In who fairness, has yes. come in and in since April has ended the border war with Eritrea, released hundreds of political prisoners, reformed human rights in the country, unblocked various as, media as channels. As of earlier this week, there are no journalists in prison in Ethiopia, and that has been a long time since that's been the case. Do you know what I mean? He just is a phenomenal force for good and progress in the country, and I, I for one, wish him a very happy and prosperous 2019. Their new year starts a bit later, though. <laughs> so, 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 so there, there is that. Uh, do, do you want to insert any caveats in there just in case it all goes a bit Robert Mugabe? Well, I mean, I guess it's it's quite early to say, isn't it? Even Robert Mugabe kind of had... Started promisingly, is you know? my point. Yeah, yeah. so mm. maybe let's revisit this in uh, in 2000, late 2019 and I'll see. I think I'm safe for at least the next three years. Okay, good good call. Abiy Ahmed, Ethiopia. Anybody else? Um, I have one also that took power in April and that might be slightly controversial in the long run. I think all of the decisions, anyone we would name <laughs> would uh, have it, that. But it, it's, my, the, it's the hostage to fortune round. Uh, but my uh, my pick is uh, Miguel Diaz-Canel, the new Cuban president. Uh, now, Don... Steady on. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, there's a lot of caveats here, too. Um, yeah, and we've only got another 20 minutes. But... Um, so far, so good in the Cuban context and as much as he could change because it's an illusion that there's still not any Castro influence left well, exactly. in he's the not, government. He's not really in charge yet, is he? But, well, he, from the things he has tried to put forward since he took office, you you would doubt that actually he's not been able to do everything he wanted. The first thing was he scrapped this controversial like private sector restriction that would mean that only one business was allowed uh, per person and on the same location. So if you had a space that you wanted to have, you know, a cafe and an artist studio, you wouldn't be able to scrap that so that people could have access to business licenses, which in Cuba, you know, it might seem like um, a trivial thing for us here, but for Cuba, that's quite an important thing that private access to uh, owning your own uh, your own visit, business. Uh, he lifted the limit of 50 seats per restaurant. Um, he um, got this draft constitution pra- passed through the assembly um, and then went on this tour around the country uh, calling meetings in hospitals, in schools, uh, in parks, um, explaining what the draft constitution means. And some of the most th- amazing things there, and you need to remember, this is like, 
the most significant political um, change in Cuba since the old constitution was approved in 76. Um, and he reintroduces the post of the prime minister um, makes room for governors in the 15 provinces of, of Cuba, which so far, you know, it was the president's one voice and that's it, um, limits the terms of the president both by um, and the number of years and the age. So uh, if you run for, for office after the age of 60, you will be disqualified and you're limited to a two-term presidency. Um, the, it changes the wording of marriage from a woman and a man to two persons, which is signifying, obviously, the pathway to approving um, same-sex marriage eventually. Um, and uh, and introduces as well um, this discrimination that you can't a ban on discrimination against um, not granting someone a job uh, for their religion, for their gender, for their sexual orientation. These are significant steps for Cuba. And also the fact that he um, uh, wrote an executive order to a Texad um, local uh, mobile operator, a local national mobile operator, to um, now during the month of December, through different uh, through phases, for people to finally have access to internet on their mobile phones. Um, obviously, there's a lot of uh, caveats here, mainly with the internet thing that you know to access. Four g- uh, gigabytes of data costs thirty dollars when the average Which salary is thirty dollars, <laughs> um, and Cuba still hasn't allowed uh, for independent um, uh, monitors and human rights organizations to go in, um, and also all the media is still state owned. But from someone who took office in April, that's more progress than we've seen um, in a long time in that that in the nation. So I really hope twenty nineteen has more of that for him. Okay, uh, Fernando, is there anybody you want to pick? Yes, I have a lovely one, a bit boring, but <laughs> I, I remember you telling me, Andrew, that you like a boring leader. I, I, I was about to nominate my own boring leader, so you go first. We like it. Is the Uruguayan president Tabare Vasquez? I mean, he's from the same party as Mujica, who was loved all around the world. And again, Uruguay, quiet rich, doing very well, all the things that, that doesn't Carlotta really said. do anything to upset anybody, does exactly. it? Exactly, I mean, come I, on. I, I, I have myself never been upset by Uruguay. I never Actually, b- I think they knocked Australia out of the World Cup once. I mean, they play but, sometimes ugly football, but, but that's, that's, that that's it. That's the maximum I can say. So well done, Tabare Vasquez, and he's 78 as well, looking quite good and, and tanned, I must add. <laughs> See, I, I, I was going to not... Well, he's not a leader yet, but he probably will become in 2019, which is Australia's leader of the opposition, Bill Shorten, who, again, I don't wish to tempt fate, but I think he has quite a lot of the qualities that um, that, I, that I look for in my idealised Prime Minister of Australia, i.e. somebody who will change very little, accomplish almost nothing, and who you will barely notice while he's in power. Well, uh, custodian. The w- that because th- this is this has always been the line I would take if I was seeking high political office in Australia at the risk of uh, well uh, just to reassure any nervous Australian listeners I have absolutely no intention of doing that. But that that would be my line. It's just look at Australia it's fine pretty much. E- everything works. Uh, everyone seems to know what they're doing. Uh, call me if there's a a thing or whatever but but crack on. Well, with any luck and the rate it has changed, maybe it will happen before the new year. Exactly. But, but that, 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 that would be my line. Um, and, I, and I think Australia is crying out for that sort of leadership. Status quo or bust. <laughs> we should add some good tailoring. Like We have to mention Justin Trudeau as well. Someone with a nice, uh, interesting clothing. It's, it helps as well. Are you, are, you, are you a fan of his forays into ethnic dress? 
I don't mind. I think if it is a problem, it's a very little problem compared to other leaders in the world. You well, know? no, I, the, the, I think people, just... people people are doing worse things than, than exactly than, than dressing like. He could be wearing a tense suit like Obama. He just got overexcited. He got the woozies. Those are the thing the puppies have. What's the, there's a word in English? The boozies. Um, that's not a word in English. I don't know what you're talking about. Do you mean the woozies? The, yes. I don't know. I'm not sure that's a word. I'm not sure that that's a word in English either. Correct. Maybe yeah, <laughs> do some research. <laughs> I believe we have deviated slightly from our original point, but nonetheless, there there, there is some positive input uh, to leaders of the world. Uh, three who are in charge, or three or four in charge there, and one who may become so shortly. Uh, we will take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Carlotta Rabello, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and Augustin Machelari. Coming up next, a good year for cinema in quantity of tickets sold, if not necessarily quality of movies that sold them. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, a monocle guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the monocle guide to drinking and dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. And you are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Carlotta Ribello, Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Augustin Machelari. It has been a good year for cinema, at least in terms of ticket receipts. American box offices are on course for a record year, clearing $11 billion in takings for 2018 earlier this week, well ahead of last year's record. It may seem counterintuitive, there being more options than ever for watching movies without having to go to cinemas, which are expensive and have people in them. But here we appear to be and here is one of the reasons you get to decide what kind of king you are going to be don't freeze i never freeze that was a clip from global box office sensation Black Panther, one of the reasons that this has been an absolute record year for Hollywood. Uh, Fernando, I will ask you first, as I, I'm, I'm a little bit at sea on this discussion in that I, I am baffled that people are still going to cinemas. I think I've set foot in one about once in the last decade. But... Why do they endure? Well, they endure because I think, you know, the studios, they're making, a, a, you know, an spectacle uh, for people. The people wanted to go to the cinema, especially with the Black Panther, because there was another team for 2018. I mean, if you look at the top 10 films with the higher box office, sure, they are mainly like sequel superhero films, but they have more diversity. They're, they're different. And in fact, I have to be honest with you, Andrew, if you look at them, they're usually pretty good i have to say but it's so, but it's not it's not so much about the films which i'm sure are are hmm. very good for what they are it's the fact that people are still clearly willing to go and spend 20 dollars on a bucket of popcorn and sit in a seat 
which is sticky with heaven knows what. It's uh, fun. And, and, and deal with a big room full of people fiddling with their phones. I'm not surprised. I think sometimes we overestimate the power of streaming services like Netflix. Of course, they're powerful. They have the money. They are changing a little bit things in the industry. But, you know, going to the cinema, people still enjoy it. And it's not only in the US. There's been an uptick worldwide, 5% so far. I mean, the year's not over yet. We have so many new releases. It, it, it's happening everywhere. I mean, of course, China... Uh, which will surpass Hollywood, I think, in, in probably a couple of years. Europe, everywhere. There's not even countries in recession. The cinema industry is still doing very well. That makes me very happy. I mean, Augustine, and this is a, a pet theory I, I have developed in the past several seconds. Is it, is it possibly something to do with the fact that, in theory at least, the cinema demands that you do actually switch off everything else in a way that television doesn't, in a way that your phone or your computer certainly don't? Uh, and so this is the last place into which you can retreat for those couple of hours of thinking, I'm just going to concentrate on one thing at once. Uh, I don't think it is that. I like I said, <laughs> the last few seconds, it, it, it may need work. I've just been having I've just been having a daydream where I've just been thinking about you as a Michael Hulebeck character who hates going and sharing any experience with the general public. I think the cinema endures because people, you know, need some sort of simulacrum of community and of shared experience and because there's a difference between sitting in your bedroom at home watching a new release on a laptop screen I, know, I suppose you can tweet great. about it where is, <laughs> where is cinemas I don't want to think are, about you sitting on your bed watching where, a new release where, on a laptop where, where, where screen is, where is cinemas are awful no and in a cinema you know you're there you you get to tune in to the kind of hive mind as it reacts to the different emotional peaks and troughs of the film you laugh you cry it's like going to see stand-up comedy stand-up comedy is always much funnier in real life than it is on your own because everyone else is laughing and you get all caught up and suddenly you're laughing at a joke that isn't really funny and if you watch it on youtube then you just think, oh, this is no good. But, Turn if, it but, off. If, but if you go and see it at the cinema as well, you can't fast forward through the boring or annoying bit. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and most films contain quite a lot of those. It's true. And you can't just pause it and read the plot on Wikipedia and turn it off. But I guess that's part of the sacrifices we make to share experiences with other people. And and, and I was thinking, I, 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 you know, when I get to see films, it's about a year and a half too late because it's when they're on television. But but you, you, miss, you miss being able to, as I did, um, you know, during Darkest Hour, the the Churchill thing starring Gary Oldman in a cinema, you can't swear out loud at that ridiculous scene set on the London Underground. <laughs> sure, no, you do have to be a bit more restrained. I, I think I, I would have I would have bitten chunks out of the inside of my mouth at that point had I been sitting well, in a cinema. Well, that's where you buy popcorn just to <laughs> fill yourself up. Well, even stifle the screams. Even though very briefly you're talking about cinema experience, I mean, when I when I went to see Mamma Mia, here we go again. When Cher sang Fernando, there were clappings. I mean, which Fernando were welcome in that scene. I mean, I, including my clappings as well. But the cinema erupted in, in happiness. The same thing with Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah. It was such an amazing experience to actually see that uh, in the cinema rather than, you know, at home or whatever. Because it, it had so much, so many reactions from the audience throughout. And it was quite funny because um, a lot of the dialogue in crazy rich Asians when they're in Singapore is both in Cantonese and Mandarin. And there would be these jokes that only if you spoke one of the languages you'd get. And I found it quite satisfying for a, chan a change, not 
understanding some of the references, but everyone around me were laughing. And it's like, okay, that must have been funny. I need to look at look it up. Where if I was home, I'll just assume, oh, they're speaking enough of the language. I have no idea if this is funny or not. Um, so it adds to the experience. And then you also need to take into account there are people that really do love the cinema for the technical side of it. And you can only see that in, in its full glory when you're in a big screen and with surround system. And when I say big screen, not enough that you can buy in a shop, Andrew, like a, t- a big TV <laughs> or a surround system that you can get from Amazon to deliver on your doorstep. But that idea that you're so immersed. And if you are someone that appreciates cinema as a craft in the sense of the technical details, the way scenes are shot, etc., or the sound score and everything else... The only the cinema can actually provide you that. Finally, though, all three of you, very, very quickly, starting with you, Augustine, what was the last film you actually went to a cinema to see? I went to the cinema on Tuesday and I saw Sorry to Bother You, which is really funny and weird. I think you'd like it. Okay. Recommended. Well, I'll see it in a couple of years when it's <laughs> on telly. Uh, Fernando? Well, the last one was uh, A Star is Born, which I thought it was uh, a 7 out of 10. But I am going this weekend to see Aquaman and a documentary called Free Solo about... Uh, a free climber as well. That does actually look very good. Exactly. I was reading a thing about that recently. Carlotta? I saw Dogman, an Italian movie. Oh, about, I want to see It's really it. good. It's uh, basically about this uh, dog groomer that somehow gets involved with the mafia. And I can't really I, tell much more. I was really more. hoping it was going to be about a superhero dressed as a dog. No. See, that that might actually have tempted me. I would think you were more of a mafia guy than superhero. It, well, if somebody would combine <laughs> the two, if somebody would make basically a remake of The Godfather, which somehow <laughs> involves a superhero who is a guy dressed as a dog... Yeah, I'm, I'm turning up and I'm buying 20 quid's worth of popcorn for that. Hey, predictions for 2019, that's the way to get Andrew Muller back in this Funny cinema. Funny things have happened. Uh, but finally tonight, uh, we should acknowledge an act of festive charity by a couple of big-hearted Berlin nightclubs. As winter sets in, Be New and Astra Culture House have announced that they will offer themselves once a week as an overnight haven for the city's homeless, believed to number now as many as 10,000. Event schedules will be cut back to accommodate this initiative. Um... Fernando, first of all, I'm I'm never quite sure when you read of things like this, and it's it's not at all to to denigrate the generosity of these two clubs. It's a, a splendid gesture, but I don't really know where you where you're supposed to end up between applauding this and being sort of despairing and angry that nightclubs are doing this. Well, I feel despair, Andrew, because you know we're talking about Berlin, but I mean even here in London, I've been living here for ten years. The, the number of homeless people has been increasing. And, and, and I say, why this is not uh, big news? You know, I, I think it should. I mean, you're talking about the knife crime, massive problem as well. But I think homelessness as well. And, and, and I think we can all see in this table, I mean, the number of homeless people here in London as well. How is it increasing? What is the government doing, you know, for that? You know, so, uh, but, but, you know, of, of course, it's amazing that those uh, Berlin clubs are, are welcoming the homeless. Uh, but it's sad that private institutions are having to do that, something that perhaps the government is not being able uh, to sort it out. Uh, I agree with Fernando. I think it's important to get, you know, for the solutions to happen to solve such a crisis as it is homelessness um, to come from government and local authorities rather than to have these private companies and entities stepping in. But also I think the fact that there are, these are two nightclubs it's really nice because we are at a point when we talk about our cities and the way our urban environment is changing that we even have like nightmares and etc. to try to raise awareness that, you know, 
the night in the city is not just partying. There is a whole economy that happens with it. And by you having nightclubs doing this, it's kind of their social responsibility as also, you know, elements, vital elements of the urban fabric of a city to, you know, give back in the fact that it's such an unusual place rather than, you know, it might have been more expected if it was a church doing so or a school while the term is out. But the fact that our nightclubs highlights this sort of um, little battle that has been going on in local offices and city hall to raise awareness of this whole other side of city living that is often seen uh, or not seen and ignored. Uh, actually, the people and the industries that prepare the city for us that live in it during the day. Augustine, is, is there something here that governments could look at? Because the thing that strikes me about nightclubs is that of the things that are in a city, they're actually potentially quite well equipped to be able to do this because they are fundamentally large empty spaces. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think they'd struggle in the UK because uh, the only thing that's getting cut faster than <laughs> sort of homeless uh, outreach help that's funded by the government is uh, nightclub licenses so they're shutting down at the rate of knots as anyone who's lived in London for a while will notice um, I mean the, the the question of whether one should applaud or despair I don't think that those two things are necessarily mutually exclusive but I think that we should um, and I think that everyone should be really angry with the way that homelessness has been allowed to kind of metastasize and I don't I don't think that you know these private um, companies should be used as a, as an alternative for the government just to sort of offload its duty of care for the most vulnerable people in the country onto. Well, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Augustin Machalari, Carlotta Rebello, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you for joining us. The show was produced by Carlotta Rebello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Martha Libri. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's The Menu with Marcus Hippie. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. 